0: Everybody, it's here. At killer Country. My name is Brittany Ransom, and <laughs> my
1: name is Brian Joyner.
0: And this is when killers get caught, a podcast devoted deep dives into the killers we love to learn about each week. Brian and I discuss two true crime stories that resonated with us, and then I'll lead you down the dark path of learning about who a killer was, how they grew up, how they killed, and importantly, how they got caught. And when Brian ends our podcast with a touch of the paranormal, a story about cryptids or even the creepier side of life. Just want to say thank you so much for listening to us. Normally, I'd say every week. But in general, thanks so much for listening while we've been gone. Um, if you've been watching on TikTok or any other time, you know that I had a little bit of a people in my life and I needed a couple of weeks off. But now I'm in my new apartment and it's super awesome. I have a dedicated recording space and I'm very excited to be back creating for you on here and TikTok.
1: Right. And i just and also a lot of work
0: (laughs) well i mean we do it together so i don't want to make it always hang on you but yeah uh but if you do happen to hear any echo i am waiting on some soundproofing so sorry about that y'all but this is for all the people on tiktok who have been asking me for weeks when's the next episode it's now (laughs) (laughs) now listen now this week on true crime i have an interesting story this is, this is a mystery of a mother who went to the ER and she vanished 32 years ago. Her name was Myrtle Brown and she went to the hospital in Brooklyn in 1990. It was May. And then her family never heard from her again.
1: Hmm. Interesting. interesting. So, so wait, so the ER, she just disappeared from.
0: Right. They, they know what her family never heard from her ever again. So. So we have to bring up Ebony Brown, who's her daughter, because she was 13 years old when her mom went missing. And so that May, uh, Myrtle Brown was in New York visiting her best friend and her purse was stolen. Her purse had her epilepsy medication and all of her identification. And she ended up telling her family, like, I don't feel well. I'm going to go to the hospital so they can give me epilepsy meds until I can get back home. So she ended up going to Kings County Hospital in Brooklyn to get a refill. Um, her daughter said that she went by herself, and that was the last time they heard from her. And for weeks, like her grandparents and other family members went to all the local police in Brooklyn. They went to all of the hospitals in the area and never got any answer. Um, Ebony, her daughter said that she were she wondered if maybe, you know, like her mom just wanted a different path in life, you know. Sometimes people do that, especially back then. And she said she was really confused and sad. But then uh, 32 years later, in April of this year, Myrtle's brother, Robert Brown, was watching NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt, and it aired a profile of of the Cold Case Squad in New York City. Um, It was run by the New York City uh, Office of Chief Medical Examiner. Uh, That person is Dr. Angela Solar, And they had opened up something like 1,250 unidentified persons cases and most of them were from the 90s. Now, uh, in this report that Robert Brown was watching, he saw a picture of a facial reconstruction. Like, it was a full statue. um, Like a clay model. And he was like, that could be my sister. Is that my sister? And so he and his wife called the medical examiner's office And Solar and her team are like, we'll look into it. And so they take out the record reconstruction and they're like, okay, this absolutely would be a middle aged black woman. And it did match for all of the things the family were telling her, you know, her age, when she might have disappeared or died. May of 1990. And for two months, uh, Solar reviews all of these records. Uh, They're called Unverified Unknowns or missing people with potential with a potential name that has not been verified or confirmed. Uh, she started her search on May 1st, 1990 until she found who she thought was Myrtle Brown on May 17th, 1990. But it turns out that that reconstruction wasn't Myrtle. Um, essentially, the contextual information matched. She passed away in Brooklyn, which matches what the family said. Um, and so pretty much the Brown family's like, oh, well thanks for trying and but then they get a call from solar a couple more weeks later and she's like no we found your sister and Mm -hmm. and he's just like she's like i think we found your sister um the daughter was on the call and that even though that pic that statue wasn't their their her mom they did Mm -hmm. still find her mom in the records oh Um, okay so yeah yeah, they ended ended up sending a photograph of her deceased and it was a, a very a perfect match one that they would have taken at the morgue since uh, she was unidentified um, Myrtle uh, so Myrtle was 35 um, she didn't even get registered or admitted to Kings County Hospital. the most she had been able to do before she had a seizure was walk up to the counter give them her name and date of birth and then she died in the like emergency waiting room wow yeah they were able to hold a virtual memorial for her because the family's like not all in the same place now but um all that uh, solar says she hopes from this experience and the fact that they're talking about it now is that this will encourage other people to come forward because they are trying to do the work to find a lot of the missing people and i'm just saying these are just the missing cases in brooklyn those mm. 1200 I'm sure that there's literally uh, every precinct has their own giant list um, in New York it's a massive massive state but yeah, um, I can you know but Solar said even though it didn't end up being the individual that individual recreation was based off of this did help us resolve a case and it did make a difference and that's the point to get people to stop and think for a moment and follow through and give us a phone call so in the end it did have uh, a good ending
1: well, there you go there you go you get some use out of their new tech- or technology. And, yeah. Sure. If, it's really tough. You just got to have the
0: people to do the work because there's just so many cold cases across the entire country. And that's a lot so, of money and they got to get the funding and people have to find value in it. So the more that they publicize these cases of them actually closing them, I think they can get more funds and, and mm-hmm. show that it is worth it to, to devote money to closing these cases and giving people some level of closure. Yeah, you were
1: right. So what do you that. got for me, Brian? Okay. <clears throat> so remember that, um, God, goodness gracious, when did this happen? I don't know. We, t- I talked about it for a little bit. Uh, Courtney uh, Claney. You remember her?
0: Not by her name. What's up?
1: Do you remember? Okay. Well, she goes by and knows her name. It's Courtney. Uh, I think it's Courtney Taylor. She's a... <sighs>
0: Oh, the OnlyFans wow. only lady who killed the guy in Miami.
1: There you go. There you yeah, go.
0: yeah. I don't know her name, but I know her face. <laughs> I have the picture of her sitting on her uh, little, like, the sitting outside of her apartment covered in blood and handcuffed on the floor and the dogs are around her.
1: Yeah, I have that, that... picture
0: on my phone.
1: Okay, so she is there's now a court hearing going on because Mm -hmm. you know she she's been you know she's accused of murdering her boyfriend of course um she's being charged with second degree murder uh with a deadly weapon and you know because as we
0: should i heard something i i saw something about like they had um she was trying to get these uh tapes that they had pulled from the apartment complex Mm -hmm. her lawyer was trying to get them uh
1: Pulled from evidence. Pulled from
0: evidence because it didn't happen that day. And they're like, it doesn't matter if it happened that day. But I'm like, bruh, it's a picture of her picking a fight and then like jumping on him. Like the clips that they released of it. I'm like, she was real violent.
1: Yeah. Um. So th- there is something. Okay. So there's is, a lot of. Is there more? A, is it worse? There's, there's a ton of evidence, like just showing how abusive she was in this relationship.
0: Yeah, I mean that's him. what the friends said. Like her friends were like, "I've never seen him do anything. I've only ever seen her do yeah, stuff to him. Yeah, I've seen her him. do
1: yeah. some crazy shit." But no, okay, so yeah, so this is corner hearing, right? And, and uh, I guess the, the prosecutor he's trying to get into evidence a I guess I think is what you were talking about, some videotape. Yeah, some it's, videotape it's from like of, the
0: hallway outside of their apartment. There's like a, I guess it's an, an elevator.
1: elevator. Yeah. yeah the elevator video. Yeah. He's trying to get that into evidence right now. Um, Her team's
0: fighting real it, hard because that's evidence that she's abusive.
1: Yeah. It's it, it like it's, this happened two months before his death. But it's like it shows a pattern. Like
0: Exactly. She,
1: like yeah. This is what she, does, what she did. This is who and she I'm is. I'm pretty sure. Yeah exactly. And it's funny because it says that not only do they have about 12,000 text messages be- between her and her uh, deceased fiancé. Mm-hmm. Um, but they also have her OnlyFans videos and their photos or audio content from the social media pages. Stuff like that mm-hmm. that shows that, you know, that's been recorded and that's how she acts and that's the type of person that she is. Mm-hmm. And um, the I guess the judge he's worried that so much evidence against this one person would, um, make the the process of getting a a jury a lot harder because I mean, it's going to make
0: the trial outlandish. Do you remember one of the cases we covered didn't, I think it was, um, uh, what's his name? The dating game killer, like Alcala. There were like hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of pages of evidence. Um, it's a lot, and it's a lot to make a jury sit through.
1: Yeah, I, I, like, I get that, but I'm like, but there's so much evidence that they have. How can it make it so much harder? It's, it's, it's a concept that's so weird to me. Um, well,
0: because they got to go through uh, it all. That's the situation. Yeah. And-
1: yeah. I think there's a quote from her attorney. It's uh, it says uh, to vigorously defend my client. I am not going to stand back and let her be a punching bag for the media. What? This case needs to be tried in this courtroom with the protections of a fair and impartial trial. And I'm just like, okay, I like, okay, I get they have the right to, to you know fair and impartial trial, but in you know, all this evidence is stacked against you though. It's just like...
0: Well, I, I will say this. I don't know if her OnlyFans is really necessary right? for her, because like, I think that's just going to try and paint her in a negative way because she's a sex
1: worker. Yeah, that's probably, that's what they did for, um, what's her freaking face, Casey Anthony.
0: Yeah, I don't really think we need that, but the absolutely the evidence of her in public in the building where they lived attacking him not to mention yeah. that apparently you can hear him saying in the background of the 911 call when she called it like he's still alive and he's like i think i'm dying oh my God. so ugh
1: yes yeah, he it's it's sad yeah it's sad uh, um
0: <sighs> well we'll see what happens with that case
1: uh, hopefully yeah hopefully um we hear more about it and you know, there's, there's a nice conclusion to this that everybody can agree on, except for her. I don't. <laughs> she doesn't get a nice <laughs> conclusion. You're correct. No, no, exactly. Screw you, lady. That's what I got.
0: All right, so I think Brian that most of us grew up hearing that cops were our friends. No, would you would you say that's fair?
1: <laughs> no, absolutely really. When you not. were little,
0: we're talking about little. They, I would say even some people refer to it as copaganda. Many young children very much love police officers. Um, okay, yeah. Well, it was I, like f- a, I
1: don't know, second grade, I guess.
0: Yeah. So the media and American society view police officers with a certain level of reverence reserved for very few other entities in our culture. I mean, I've seen people look a doctor in the face and be like, I know more than you. Um, mm. But definitely there have been little cracks like the glowing disdain for police brutality across the united states the lack of action in the case of the uvalde massacre three months ago but i think for me probably the first thing that began to destroy my belief in police was when i learned how many of them were killers because remember i started learning about true crime when i was about 12 years old and this right. isn't a uniquely american thing germany had normally polk china had uh, Zhang kejui Uh, We covered the beast of the Ukraine in episode 14, Mikhail Popkov. And today we're going to be talking about one of the worst in the U.S. history, Joseph James D'Angelo, a serial rapist, killer, burglar and police officer in California. He started robbing and raping people in 1974, and I first knew about him on message boards as E-A-R-O-N-S the East Area Rapist Original Night Stalker. Oh
1: my god,
0: uh, awesome. <laughs> others called him the Bazalia Ransacker, but uh, most of our followers know him as the Golden State Killer, which is the name that stuck when the FBI reopened the investigation into finding him in 2016. Uh, he get caught in 2018 and finally flee guilty on June 29th, 2020. Yes, he was in court during quarantine, like
1: covid Wait,
0: what? Really? Oh, yes. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And and he, he shocked at Jive, but we're not going to talk about that yet. That'll be next week. <laughs> because I had to break this into two parts because this is, he's another one of these ones like Gary Ridgway who really lived an actual double life. And so this week we're going to talk about mainly his upbringing, the the crimes, and yeah. and his family life. And then next week we will talk, we'll go into much more detail because the task forks and things, just like with Gary Ridgway, these, the people who were searching for him, searched for him for a very long time. And some people never gave up. But before we get to how they caught him, let's start with where we always start, the beginning. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was born on November 8th, 1945 in Bath, New York to his mother, Kathleen Louise DeGroat and Joseph D'Angelo Sr., Uh, who was from Watkins Glen, New York, and Kathleen was a waitress when they met. They got married November 20th, 1941, in New York. He had three other siblings, Becky, Connie, and John. Now, Joseph Sear was a well-respected airman, and there are articles that date back to, like, 1944, the Star Gazette, that show that he flew in raids across Europe. He had been given seven different medals, his dad, um, Uh, But Joseph Sr. and Kathleen didn't really make it, even a decade before they split. We don't have the exact dates, but sometime after Joseph Jr.'s brother John was born in 1949, the couple split up. Now, there are some interesting accounts about... (sighs) Okay, we got to pause. The dog's freaking out. (coughs) So I came across a few accounts from Joe's family about an interesting incident that they say might have shaped him in a tragic way. So with Joseph senior being in the military active duty, apparently they spent some time in German military bases when he was young and there his sister, Connie was apparently sexually assaulted by two men. Now the details are fuzzy at best, but essentially Connie's son told the press this, Uh, in recent news and the way he described it is that it was kind of like one of those horrible family stories that people only whisper about that joe and his sister were playing in an abandoned warehouse the attack happened in front of him and of course since this has been the only person who's talked about this is connie's son and Plenty of psychiatrists have waited on this story and think that, you know, seeing something like this when he was so young might have explained why he grew up to have like a preoccupation with both law enforcement and also turned into a rapist himself. Connie is no longer alive, so we can't really confirm if this really happened, but it's just a detail and we're not sure if it's true or not. But regardless of that other story, what we do know for sure is that after traveling with dad, um, they did put down roots in Rancho Cordova in a small tract house. I had to look up what a tract house was, but tract housing is a housing development built in an area that's been subdivided into different lots. When I looked up pictures of them, it reminded me of like those suburban neighborhoods where all the houses look the same and there are rows and rows and rows of them. Yeah. Though, I guess a a correct term for those are tract houses. The interesting thing though, was that uh, the D'Angelo family was so poor that they, they owned virtually nothing in their home. Even the kids' beds were all rented from like a rent center type place. And I think that's poignant because when Joseph Sr. went to Korea and then Florida and never came back, all of the house and the items and the things that the kids owned had to be given back to the bank and the lenders. Now, Joe's mom eventually meets a traveling welder who had a wife and kids of his own in S- Southern California. And his name was Jack Basanko and he'd been in the Navy Uh, I'm sure this illicit relationship didn't contribute to his uh, divorce from his first wife, but in 1965, Kathleen and Jack got married. The marriage came much later after the relationship because uh, Jack moved the family to Tulare, California in the 50s, which did not make teenage uh, Joseph very happy, mainly because he was suddenly responsible for helping the kids in the family. Not just his brother and sister, but also Jack's kids, too, because he was the oldest kid. And this caused a huge rift in the relationship with his mother, and the two got into a lot of very big fights about it. During this time, when he was at Mills Junior High School, he made friends with a girl named Judy in about 1959. And he started hanging out with Judy and her brothers, who he also knew from school. He started calling Judy's parents mom and dad, uh, spent as much time as he could with them. Judy had a huge family. And her parents treated Joseph like he was kid number 10. Now Rancho Cordova was very much a town not even halfway built up at this point. It actually wasn't fully incorporated until July 1st, 2003. (laughs) So pretty much Judy's brothers and Joseph just ripped and ran through all these abandoned vineyards in the area. Um, The town got big, or I guess big in quotation marks, after World War II. Soldiers came back from war and they got their war money and started building homes there. But they, they spent their time, you know, finding frogs, bugs, jumping in the canals, occasionally beating up people who mess with their friends. And uh, we're going to say Joseph's first relationship letdown happens in Rancho Cordova. He could have been very old, but apparently his, his shtick was that he liked to steal gin and work on cars in his teens. And at some point during that time, he met one of Judy's friends and he kind of fixated on her a little bit and he took her to a cabin in the wood in the area to drink and, like, hang out, which seems like a very teen thing to do. And then he asked her to marry him. And she was like, I barely know you. No, thanks. Uh, he, exactly. Like, you're, you're teenagers. So um, Joe's only real sexual information came from Judy's mom, who one time sat like, down all of the sons <laughs> and had a talk with the boys about, you know, the birds and the bees. Now, Joseph's lack of experience with the girls and a tendency to go too far too fast when courting leads to a lot of heartbreak yeah. and not many girlfriends, which is why he started peeping during this time. He even looked in Judy's window one night and it scared the absolute crap out of her, but she didn't recognize him because he had a hood up. We can we can mark this as a check mark in showing a predilection for deviancy in his teen years. Since his capture and conviction, friends and family have told the press that while Joseph was in high school with them at Folsom High School, he did commit some small burglaries and he was also known to harm animals. Another check mark in the McDonald triad. Now his time at Folsom High School is pretty short lived. He started in 1961 and by 1964, he dropped out, got his GED and he joined the Navy. Judy's older brother had done the same thing like the year before and the two were best friends. So Maybe he just wanted to be like his buddy. Now his time in the Navy was as good as any person's time could be, when you finish basic and immediately get shipped off to Vietnam. Um, he was called. He was a damage controlman second class, and he served on both the USS Canberra and the USS Piedmont. And he finished his time in the Navy in good standing after a twenty-two month tour, and went back to normal civilian life. He always liked to tell people that he lost part of his finger in the war. Uh, But it was literally like a machine accident. Like, it wasn't because, like, anybody cut him. But he liked to let people think that it was more important than it was. Now, at this point, um, his stepfather, Jack, is working at Sierra Crane and Hoist as a welder. Uh, Joseph decided he was like, I'm going to go to college. And a lot of young men after Vietnam did that. My dad did that. I mean, at that point, the the G.I. Bill was actually sending people to college and paying for their way to live. So he starts at Sierra College in Rockland, California in 1968. And he gets his, to go get his associate's degree in, politi- in police science, which is a degree I didn't know existed. Um, and after finishing that, he'd end up going to Sacramento State University and he begins his studies there in 1971. I'm going to say the first line in the sand that show that Joseph is not a good guy starts in college in this gap before he starts school at Sacramento state. He met and started dating a girl named Bonnie Jean Caldwell and Bonnie's parents were a high school principal and a former teacher. So they expected a lot of academic excellence from Bonnie. She had three siblings who were all class presidents when they were in school. Bonnie was the class treasurer. She was a really good pianist who volunteered once a week with Vietnam vets. And when she was in high school, boys didn't really care a lot for her. So when she meets Joe at Sierra College, she's inexperienced but a little hopeful. Now, he's presenting himself as this hardened vet who lost his finger in the war. Mind you, he was like a carpenter on these ships. But he did not correct anyone when they showered him with praise for a vet, for being a Vietnam vet. They're like you were in the jungle, yeah. and he's like, "Yeah, totally." <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what I did. So Bonnie's an excellent student. Thank you for your service. All honors. She tutored people, worked as a lab assistant. That's actually how <laughs> that Bonnie weird. and Joseph met, right? So Joseph studying in <laughs> this, joking. like, you know, political science, police science, and she's working in a lab in a lab with animals. They have no reason to be in the same building at all, but he's there. And they meet. She likes him. He's into her. The two were an odd pairing, though. Bonnie was bookish, and Joseph wasn't. So Bonnie actually spent a lot of their relationship tutoring him in school. Um, Bonnie's friends were like, he's old. Because remember, she's like 18. All her friends are 18, 19-year-old freshmen, and he's easily four years older than them. Um, To try and make up for the fact that he didn't want to be like the weird old guy. He was always ultra nice. Tried to be very funny. People said he gave off a James Dean vibe. He wore like faded jeans, T-shirts, suede boots. When Bonnie's father, Stan Caldwell, learned about the two of them dating, he was not into it. He didn't like that Joseph was older, but Bonnie was on her independent tip and she was like, I can do what I want with my life. You're not going to stop me from dating somebody. Now, when Stan got to meet Joseph and he learned that he was a Vietnam vet, he was like, okay, maybe he's not that bad because Stan was a World War II vet. Now, Bonnie had four younger brothers who really liked Joseph, and he had a blue Road Runner with a Hemi engine, and so they were always very interesting. Ooh, okay. He'd take the younger brothers on trips to a drive-in. Um, he'd offer to fix things for the boys since he was good at that kind of thing. And even if he, like, fixed it and it didn't work well, and it, like, broke or exploded, they all thought it was hilarious, so. Now, they're in this relationship, and Joseph starts wearing Bonnie's class ring on his pinky finger, and in public, he's a gentleman. But in private, Bonnie finds his desires for sex to be overwhelming. She would later tell Sacramento prosecutors that, While he was persistent, he never forced her and always waited for her to say yes, which is still really grating because I don't like it.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. Um, But she did also tell them that sex with Joe was... I don't like being like... Uh, Just stop bugging me about it. I said, no, leave me alone. ...demand these three to four hour sessions. Every time they had sex. um, A detail that would connect him to some of his victims later in life. Shortly after they started having sex, Joseph gives Bonnie an engagement (laughs) ring. No proposal or romance. Just like, here you go, you're mine now. Um, Their engagement even ran in a local paper. Bonnie's not sure she wants to marry this guy. She's 18 years old. But she's like, if I get married, then I don't have to go back home to my dad. So she's like, okay. The stone bothered her, too, because he said he found it in Vietnam. It was huge. And he had put it in this strange setting. It wasn't, like, shaved down or anything. So that when Bonnie was trying to do her, like, medical work as a nurse or in nursing training, she'd have to turn the ring to the inside of her palm. She never got the chance to even tell him what she wanted for a ring. Mm. And the longer they dated, the more she realized that he was just, it was yeah, weird. So he was addicted to breaking yeah. the rules and doing things that were against the law or dangerous. From ta- like hopping, having when they were on like his motorcycle, he would take these like paths that were scary. And she would be on the motorcycle with him. So he was scaring the crap out of her. Or like he was like, you should learn how to hunt and, you know, protect yourself and stuff. And so then he would take her to places where it was illegal to hunt. And then he would would always be trespassing or he would spearfish in Folsom Lake, which is also illegal. He would go hunting for animals outside of hunting season. So. So in the spring of 1971, they're pretty much juniors at this point. Joseph asks Bonnie to cross a line that's too much for her. her. He's failing abnormal psychology and he needs this class to pass for the the criminal justice he asks her to cheat and bonnie's like no he even tried to do it without her permission because i guess they were in the same class and she's just like no i'm not letting you cheat off of me he is livid and this becomes a major issue in their relationship for joseph he's just like you owe it to me we're gonna get married one day once i make it onto the california highway patrol So the night things explode, Bonnie's at her parents' living room, and she calls him, and she's like, we need to talk. And she breaks it off with him. And he's like, but I love you. We're meant to be together. We're perfect together. And Bonnie's just like, we're not a good fit. I've already decided. She gives him back the engagement ring. Joe is losing his shit. He actually throws the ring into the backyard in front of the family, and Bonnie and her brothers ended up looking for it, but they never found it. They weren't even sure he actually really threw it. Now a couple nights later bonnie wakes up and there's a tap 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 on her window she moves the curtain and there is joseph holding a gun against the glass it is right in line with her face and he looks at her and he goes get dressed we're going to reno <laughs> bonnie turns and runs straight into her family's bedroom and she's just like joe's outside he has a gun he wants me to go to reno and marry him right now and her dad's like go into the bathroom lock the door i'll come get you when i'm done and the dad goes out to go talk to joseph the cops never get called and bonnie believes the reason her dad didn't call the cops is because it would have ruined his future in becoming a police officer Um, but about two hours later uh Dad knocks on the bathroom door, and he's like, "Joseph's gone." He never told her what happened over those two hours. The rest of the family didn't even know it happened. Bonnie's so freaked out, she drops out of school for the rest of the summer and changes her major to lab sciences. She gets married to an accountant in 1972, and she sees Joe one more time before she graduate before he graduates in 1973. At this point, though, Bonnie is nine months pregnant, and they're at the mall. And she pulls her husband to the side and like hides from him. Now, Bonnie goes on to get married. She she has a good life. Um, She doesn't know anything about Joe's life until 2018 when uh, her ex-husband, the accountant she married in 1972, called her in 2018. And he said, what's the name of that guy you dated before me? And Bonnie's like, Joseph D'Angelo. And her ex-husband's like he just got arrested for being the <laughs> East area rapist she wasn't even in the U.S. she was in Italy with friends of hers and she was running a successful travel blog and s- reporters started just stalking her and it didn't stop when she got back to the U.S. people actually took her travel blog and her Facebook page mm-hmm. and turned them into a book before the trial even came out and mm-hmm. sold it on Amazon right um What really, really messed up Bonnie's was when she heard that the 37th victim heard Joe say, I hate you, Bonnie, after he raped her. Um, An uncomfortable personal connection to his crimes. What's even worse is that in the time between their breakup and Joe's graduation in 1973, reports of break-ins in rancho cordova began to start now this is different than more most burglaries though he would show up outside of people's windows with no pants on um he would break in he wouldn't steal anything but he would like molest the person while they were sleeping and then run away when she broke up Mm -hmm. he's like maybe he would steal a coin or a ring he hit a few houses every night and he was known to also kill family dogs now coincidentally um, remember I said that she saw Joe in the mall that day the woman that she saw him with was his future (sighs) wife Sharon Marie Huddle and Joseph Mm -hmm. met Sharon after he and Bonnie split Sharon was 17 and Joseph was 26 she was a freshman at American River College in North Sacramento studying law and as we know Joe is still now well, actually, you don't know, but he's now transferred to a new college and he's studying criminology. So the future lawyer and the future cop match made in heaven, right? Very quickly, like they start like they start dating right as soon as the semester starts 1971. And he she's like, coming, yeah, by yeah sure. So the Summer of 1971. Sharon's older brother, James Huddle's there with both of the parents. James is 20. And, um, even though he didn't live with the family anymore, they would still like come over and have like family dinners. Now, Joseph is all smiles and full of stories about, he was in the Navy for two years. He was in Vietnam. Uh, Sharon's brother, James was in the Navy reserves that creates some kind of camaraderie. Uh, Joseph's like, I'm looking for a place to stay since I just, you know, started at this new school and James is like, well, I have a friend. Like, I live in a place and we have, like, an empty room. My friend owns the house. It's in Citrus Heights. You want to talk to him? So Joseph moves in and that friendly setup lasts barely any time. Literally, the, the guy who owns the house kicks Joseph out in, like, two months. And so as Joseph is leaving, he's just like, you're going to be next, buddy. And uh, he wasn't wrong because apparently a month after that, the guy kicked James oh, cool. out for smoking, so maybe that guy just did want people to really live in his house. Like once you like invite people to live with you, and then you realize like how roommates are, like maybe you just don't want these people to live with you. But regardless, Joseph gets a two bedroom, and he's like, <laughs> "You want to live with me?" Yeah. It was an ideal pairing. Both of them through the military have been trained to live neatly, um, but nobody in the Huddle family really knows much about Joseph. Definitely not what happened with Bonnie or that he had a penchant for killing animals. But those two years between 1971 and 73 are great for Joseph. He and Sharon are doing great. Uh, Joseph and James become best buddies. Mm -hmm. They fly together, go dirt bike riding, other thrill-seeking stuff. And then come the cat burglar reports. For most of my life, I assumed that a cat burglar was just an old-timey term for burglary. But actually, what it means is as a skilled burglar who gets in and out when people are there. No. I didn't realize this. So Cordova's... Well, Cordova's cat burglar is active from 1972 to 1973, and it hits over it yeah, over like 30 homes during that time. He would usually do it when the family was sleeping, He'd go in one door and out another. Um, there were other cities, too, and, and their moments when there are gaps in Cordova, the police notice that he also hits Citrus Heights and other cities. All cities that it seems like Joe has a connection to. He mainly just steals purses, wallets, you know, money. Um, But the thing with the touching the ladies happens again. And sometimes showing up with just his uh, penis out. Sometimes, like, He'd just, like, break in and be standing next to the bed. Like, paranormal activity. Just staring at people. And then he would, like, grab a lady's boob. And then when she wakes up, he just runs away. Yeah. One of the women said he touched <laughs> no. her. And when uh, she woke up, he told her, and I just stole a dollar off of your trash. He's run away? And she, I think she was just kind of in a weird, oh like, sleep God. state. She was like, this put it back. And he put $2 back on the counter. And then walked down the hallway stopped to look at the woman's 17 year old daughter sleeping and then picked off money off the (laughs) the door (laughs) now the connection here between the original burglar and this one in cordova the cordova cat burglar Mm -hmm. is that
1: no thank you
0: he's killing dogs Uh, (laughs) um, of course the the weirdness with sometimes burglarizing with no pants on that was also a very clear connection between the two and um some of these homes get hit again when the east area rapist becomes active um and what it seems like almost is that he's stealing things that are unimportant but they're trophies to him but the, like, normally they commit a crime and then they take a trophy to remember. It's almost like he's gathering them first. And then he comes back years later and rapes the person. It's awful. But we're, we're not there yet. A couple more years. Um, now, James Huddle, mind you, he's living with Joseph now and he remembers a lot of strange moments what? when they wow. were roommates before he, his sister and Joseph get married. Joseph's very competitive, when it comes to virtually everything, even cars, dirt bikes. So James gets a nice car. Joseph buys one slightly better. Um, Joseph buys a dirt bike. I mean, sorry, James buys a dirt bike. Joseph is like, I'm going to get one slightly better. Now there's a what James calls in his book, the road rage incident. Is a moment, I think, in history that James looked back on as a warning sign that he never realized. And it happens just before Joseph's college graduation in 1972. Um, The two of them are driving on Route 40 in Sacramento. Joseph very aggressively jerks the car into a lane in front of another driver. James gives the guy the finger. That's what you do when you're the passenger. And then when the car behind them gets close and tries to pass, Joseph, like, yanks in front of him again just to be a jerk. So then the two cars pull into a McDonald's parking lot. Joseph hops out of the car, opens the trunk, and the other two guys are walking over. And Joseph pulls a 357 Magnum on the other two dudes like, you got a problem with us? Of course, the two men run away immediately. And James looks at Joseph and is like, you can't do that. Not if you want to be a cop. Ugh. But Joseph kind of just shrugs <clears throat> it off. Yeah. Like James, that's shot. the first time he sees his friend and roommate do something that's actually scary. And James decides to keep it to himself. In his book, he refers to this as a little red flag. And he says, and I quote, little red flags can add up. Graduation comes. Joseph is in a prime position to be a great asset to any police department because in the 70s, it was not common for police officers to have bachelor's degrees. Even now, only about 30% of them have like bachelor's degrees. So it was even lower back then. Um, He was a perfect candidate. He had a degree, former military training. In fact, he was probably overqualified for the job that he really wanted. Um, James continues to be his roommate. Sharon continues to date him. It's early 1973. Joseph and James go on a hunting expedition. And James begins to realize that this hunting is, it means something extra to Joseph. Um, There's a situation where they were supposed to be hunting jackrabbits. And like Joseph gives him a gun that's entirely overpowered. And he urges James to make the kill. And when they go look at the body of the little jackrabbit, it's completely destroyed, just obliterated. And Joseph's excited, like, look at how this, look at it. It's so, you know, and James is like, this isn't why I was, we, we were supposed to eat that
1: again. Oh my again. God, yeah.
0: Another little red flag.
1: So this is disturbing. Burglary,
0: burglary start in Cordova Meadows. Why do we just trap it? God. <laughs> the burglaries mimic the cat burglar of Rancho Cordova almost perfectly. This burglar is not stealing high ticket items. He's stealing nude pictures of women. Women's earrings. Car magnets. One time he dumped out a bottle of codeine pills and stole just the pill bottle. He would, Now the one big ticket item he did steal was he would steal guns. But as Emma was breaking into the kitchen door, open up a back bedroom, put the window screen on the bed, unplug the furnace, move all the woman's underwear into different rooms in the house, trash the kitchen. A few times he left burnt matches on the floor. It was very clear to the police these aren't motivated by financial gain, which means that so this burger's getting some kind of high from just wrecking people's houses? Touching underwear? Much of this won't make sense for another year or two, but for many shit. of, like I said, these, they call them no-loss robberies. Yeah. These all become future homes that are targets for, their, for him when he's a rapist. Now, the police also think this strange burglar is responsible for hang-up calls that keep happening. He called this one teenage girl multiple times and told her, I love you, I love you. And then the last night he called her, he said, I love you, this is your last night to live. Um, the house where that girl lived was next door to a future murder. Now in May of 1973, Joseph becomes not just a police oh, officer, oh. but a burglary oh. unit police officer in Exeter, California. Yep. He moves to Exeter for work. The two, uh, now James and Sharon get married oh. on September. What? Sorry, sorry, <laughs> mixing up the names, because Joe and James are so close. Um, now James gets married on September 15th. And September 14th at 11 a.m., a 28-year-old woman puts down her baby for a nap when she hears a knock on the door. She ignores it but grabs her gun and then hears someone knocking at the back of the house. She catches a man breaking in and he runs away. She makes sure all the windows are locked and she calls her husband, who had just left for work. The attacker forces the door with such force that the nails holding the lock into the door break. The woman raises her gun at him and he walks away. She calls the police. He breaks in again and tries to steal the gun and it goes off. And this time he runs away for good. So literally the night of James rehearsal dinner, Joseph was trying to like rape a woman. Now, a few months later in November, Sharon and Joe get married. They move into this duplex in Exeter. Now, Exeter is a town that only has 5,000 people (sighs) at this time. Pretty much, Sharon is prepping for law school. And so she is spending all her time studying. Um, Joseph is overeducated in a small podunk town. And honestly, Exeter is still a small town. It has like maybe 15,000 people now. Uh, One of the things I found just really interesting is that Joseph takes issue with his fellow officers fudging the reports. He complained to James. About how he's like the other police officers falsify police reports, and I'm not gonna do that. And so, what an interesting look into the mind of a guy who can tell right from wrong, but it doesn't apply to him. <laughs> Shortly after this move to Exeter, the Vesalius right. Baker is born. <laughs> so, you guys need to follow. Between 1974 but not me. and
1: 1975,
0: 150 homes are broken into. Vesalia is a city that is 12 miles from Exeter. And of course, he's telling Sharon, I'm working. That's why I'm out so late every night. Again, never taking much of monetary value. A single earring, a wedding ring, some trading stamps. Sometimes he steals guns. Those are valuable. But you knew that it was the Vesalia ransacker. If you came home and your panties were all over the house, your family photo albums were destroyed, and there's a mess on your bed. Sometimes he would take kids piggy banks, but it was never like a major amount of cash flow. And my theory, right? You stole from a child. <laughs> but my theory on this is as a cop, he would know how much he could steal and have it be deemed a Okay, but still, that's so piggy he could, could piggy banks still, it well, a, my heart already changed. Misdemeanor level theft. But still get the high off of making people in an area feel unsafe. Now, here's the thing. In 1975, he commits over 120 burglars. I get you. Burglaries, even. And it really just that activity ramps up. There were several attempted sexual assaults during this time, but it never fully crossed that threshold. The <laughs> PD increased patrols. They put officers inside of houses that hadn't been hit yet. But of course, because Joseph is a cop and he has access to other cops, he could ask cops of Vesalia, oh, where are you putting people tonight? Sometimes he wears a face mask. Sometimes he doesn't. There's a police sketch that was put out, but it really wasn't the best. Um, If you look at all the police sketches, they do kind of look like him. But depending on the year, he was fluctuating pretty drastically in weight. So like sometimes he had like a chubby face and sometimes he looked very thin. And so if you were looking at the, the sketch from when he had a chubby face, and now he's, like, thinner because he's been, you know, working out more, they don't connect anymore. Because, unfortunately, outside of that, it just looks like a generic white guy. The, The sketches just look like generic white guy. Now, the first murder in these strings of burglaries happens on September 11th, 1975. And this is a crime that has now been attributed to Joseph, but it wasn't originally. It was... Claude Snelling. And what the police believe happened is that the Visalia Ransacker broke into the house and attempted to kidnap Claude Snelling's 16-year-old daughter, Elizabeth. Claude was a journalism professor and when he woke up to the attack, he jumped to action. Um, In fact, chasing uh, Joseph out of the house and getting fatally shot when they were somewhere in the distance. Police did find shoe imprints that would connect him to the other ransacker houses, and the gun that was used to kill Claude was stolen from one of the other houses that had been hit. Uh, but Joseph wouldn't be charged for this murder for another forty years. Not this stage of their lives. Joseph and Sharon are doing pretty good. Sharon's at is at McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento, and Joe decides that he wants to move up in life. Exeter is too small for me. And so he takes a job with the Auburn police to market. And that is when the East Area Rapist assaults begin happening. Now, Joe's escalation from burglar to rapist is quite abrupt, but his methodology is precise. He's still prying open the doors or windows of the houses. He's wearing a ski mask. He shines a flashlight into the eye of the victim, ties them up with a knot he learned in the military called a diamond knot. He rapes the woman of the house. And when the sexual assault's over, he does exactly like he did before. Completely trashes the house, takes small items like rings, maybe some coins, small amounts of cash. He leaves, but instead of going on the main road, he jumps through the neighbor's backyards. Now, Joe only gets officially charged with 10 of these rapes because many of them were past the statute of limitations in California. But there were a total of 50 attacks by the East Area Rapists from 1976 to 1979. All of these attacks were 20 to 30 miles from where Joseph and Sharon lived. Many of the victims did not wish to share their names um, in any books about Joseph D'Angelo. So I will continue that process of anonymity. The attacks in 1976 started, as I mentioned, and there were 10 of them from June 18th to December 18th. And then things escalated. 1977 brought 19 more. He would call these victims beforehand, hanging up on them or telling them like sexual things. Police are definitely aware that he seems to be casing the houses to see who is there. It made sense because there was a woman attacked on January 18th who wasn't assaulted until her husband left to go to work. Like almost like like we're talking 15 minutes later, Joseph breaks into the house. Um, There was another young woman who was attacked on January 24th and she had like a gathering of all her friends. And as soon as all of her friends left the house, he broke in. So it was not even that, like, he was preparing this ahead of time, but he was sitting, waiting and watching to make sure that anybody who could be a witness was gone. There's even one um, where he waited, like, he, he waited and watched until, like, a teenage girl was essentially, like, her parents weren't there for a very brief moment and... He sets it up, like we're talking, like fifteen minutes that she's alone. He sets it up. He takes her out of the house and he makes it look like she left of her own accord, and then tries to assault her in the canal's back behind her home. So these are very, very premeditated. Um, the thing is, while he is meticulous in some ways, he's in other ways he's not. So he's planning the the assaults down to a to the, the like minutes. But if something happens that he's not prepared for, he just pulls out a gun and shoots a bystander. Yep. Or if if someone shows up that he's not prepared for, he grabs the victim's car keys and drives away, drops their car off in another town without the keys. Oh,
1: well, wow. he just swings it after that. And this is not going away
0: now cost these 150 uh, sexual assaults you have Rancho cordova uh carmichael citrus heights sacramento Arden arcade orangevale parkway stockton la riviera foothill farms modesto davis concord san ramon san jose danville fremont walnut creek these are all the towns he hits during these few years and um it wasn't like the police weren't up on it. And we'll talk more about like the task forces that pop up during this time period when we talk about this next week, because it's a lot of details. And there are some definite people who did some good work, but were limited with with the science they had at the time. Um, and the neighbors were trying to help too. They would call in reports of prowlers. If there was anybody who was stopping their car, they didn't recognize, they were calling them in. Like the neighbors are trying to help. Now, one of the more bizarre, more bizarre rapes happens in September of 1977 when Joseph breaks into a woman's home, ties up her husband, rapes her twice and then spends another 90 minutes in the house just doing nothing. It's like he's not even afraid of getting caught anymore. Yep. Yep. They're both tied up, husband and wife, and he's just walking around, checking the fridge. Grab it Can up you' just
1: chilling there with the husband still tied up
0: just an extra violation <sighs> and of course like this isn't he he's threatening that's them so too gross. I mean because a lot like, of the people so after gross. he was gone this are able to like get out of the the, the yeah. knots but it's if you move I'm gonna shoot you if you move you're not gonna make it through the rest of the night Um, so, and he has guns and he shows them. So, and he's not afraid to shoot people. We definitely know that because in the news, they're reporting that there are situations where this guy's running from a house and he shoots a bystander. So people know that he's serious, that he doesn't mind killing people. So I guess some of the victims are just like, let's not die. And the media were definitely on this case. They reported on every single case. He virtually has a connection to all of the cities he's hitting. Now, he avoids the town he's living in, Auburn, but his sister still lives in Rancho Cordova still. Sharon's parents live in Citrus Heights. Sharon's brother and his wife live in Orangevale, all towns east of Sacramento, hence the East Area Rapists. Joseph loves to talk to his family and coworkers about the East Area Rapists. He brings it up randomly when he visits James at his house. <laughs> He even offers to check James's God, home security system to make sure that James's wife Cindy is safe. Oh, of
1: course, he does. That's so-
0: and it's so fake because, of course, James is safe. Joseph wasn't gonna break into their home and lo- like, cause then James would know it was him. Mm. And you know, James tells him what to look for, and Joseph tells him what to look for, and James trusts his brother-in-law. Yeah. By the end of 1977, there are 29 rapes, and it shows no sign of stopping. At the end of December, though, someone claiming to be the East Area Rapist sends a poem called Excitement's Crave to the Sacramento Bee, a newspaper, the mayor's office, and the television station KVIE, because I had to hear this horrible poem, so do you. Let's listen to some horrible poetry from a rapist. Says all those mortals surviving birth upon facing oh. maturity, take inventory of their worth to prevailing society. Oh, Choosing gosh. values become a task. One's self must seek satisfaction. The selected route will unmask character when plans take action. Accepting some work to perform at fixed pay but promise for more, is a recognized social norm. As is decorum, seeking lore, achieving while others lifting should be cause for deserving fame. Leisure tempts, excitement seeking. What's right and expected seems tame. Jesse James has been seen by all and Son of Sam has an author. Others now feel temptation's call. Sacramento should make an offer. To make a movie of my life that will pay for my planned exile. Just now I'd like to add the wife of a mafia lord to my file. Your East... <laughs> I'm not done yet! Your East Area Rapist and Deserving Pest See you in the press or on TV.
1: Oh my gosh!
0: <laughs> I had a feeling you would like it. Shut the fuck indeed. up. <laughs> indeed, indeed. No, in
1: 1978,
0: uh, my the god, it was terrible
1: and so just fucking
0: And and the huddles. There are family events and parties. Joseph is still weird talking about the East Area Rapists at family events. 1978 starts with an attack on two teen <clears throat> girls not far from the American River Community College, Sharon's alma mater. The parents find the two girls tied up when they come home. And the girls report that he wore a ski mask, had a gun, and had a knife. His second murder happens on February 2, 1978. That's husband and wife Brian and Katie Major. They were walking through Cordova Meadows with their dog. A neighbor reported seeing the attacker and the family running through a section of fencing that had been blown down in a storm. Um, The neighbor actually witnessed the couple get shot and called 911, but the Majioras both died at the hospital. The police are looking at all of this, and they are discovering that when you kind of look at the crimes, they all happen within a third-mile radius of each other. And so the police began... Focusing on going through roughly 30,000 crime reports to try and make sense of the murders. During this time, they also find that Cordova Meadows has dozens of reports of hang up calls leading to that murder. One woman got a call every night at 8 p.m. There are prowler and cat burglars uh, like style calls being reported too. <clears throat> By March, the East Area Rapist is back at it again. There are 14 more rapes that happened this year. Nine different police sketches are released to the public. About half of them look accurate. Now, later in 1978, 15 of his victims have a luncheon to discuss their experiences, and they are all surprised to see that they all look the same, and they have similar backgrounds. Almost all of the women were upper middle class and had dark hair who in uh, what you wonder who in joseph's life is upper middle class and has dark hair his wife now there's a different mm, investigation happening in virtually every town he hits now during the investigation <coughs> in danville which happened to be the 42nd rape police get alerted to the strange car parked in a neighborhood and they find these three notebook sheets the first page is a homework essay about General Custer. The second sheet looks like a journal entry describing a teacher humility in the offer. Um I'm gonna read to you. It's weird, but Mad is the word, the word that reminds me of sixth grade. I hated that year. I wish I had known what was going to be going on during my sixth grade year. The last and worst year of elementary school. (laughs) Mad is the word that remains in my head about my dreadful year as a sixth grader. My madness was one that was caused by disappointments that hurt me very much. Disappointments from my teacher, such as field trips that were planned and canceled. And there are loads of misspellings here. My sixth grade teacher gave me a lot of disappointments, which made me very mad and built a state of hatred in my heart. No one ever let me down that hard before, and I never hated anyone as much as I did him. Disappointment was the only reason that made me mad in sixth grade. Another was getting in trouble at school, especially talking. That's what really bugged me was writing sentences, those awful sentences that my teacher made me write hours and hours I'd sit and write. 50, 100, 150 sentences day and night I wrote those dreadful paragraphs which embarrassed me and more important it made me ashamed of myself which turned deep down made me realize that writing sentences wasn't fair it wasn't fair to make me suffer like that it just wasn't fair to make me sit and write until my bones ached until my hand felt horrid pain I got madder and madder until I cried and I cried because I was ashamed I cried because I was disgusted I cried because I was mad and I cried for myself The kid who kept on having to write those damn sentences. My angriness from sixth grade will scar my memory for life and I'll be ashamed of my sixth grade year forever. And then the final page was a map of a neighborhood with the word punishment on it. Now the map wasn't a perfect replica of Danville, but the cops determined that it looked like some sort of fantasy killing ground. And they do believe that this may have been written by Joseph. I don't know. But just another weird detail for you. At the beginning of 1979, there are no rapes. And then they start again in March. And six more happen until July. And the rapes stop. Yeah. And I think it's because in August, Joseph got caught shoplifting dog repellent in a hammer from a pay and save. These items only cost $20. But the store cloak was a beast. Because he, like tackled joseph and tied him to a chair so when the auburn pd showed up they see one of their own tied to a chair by a civilian he's suspended immediately (laughs) in october a jury finds him guilty of misdemeanor theft he gets a hundred dollar fine and a six-month probation He files an appeal in November but doesn't follow through with it. (laughs) Joseph told his family that he had put the items in his waistband just to see if they fit there. Not to steal them. But he is livid with Auburn PD and expresses a desire with James to kill his bosses. Joseph told his family that in the end there was some kind of settlement with Auburn PD but there's no record of that. And with this the East Area Rapist stops. However, the emotional trauma of these events go on to haunt the victims. He was sadistic sometimes. He'd force the women to tie up their husbands. He would put a stack of dishes on the husband's body so that if he struggled and knocked it over, he would know. Interestingly enough, some of the victims said that the actual rape part only lasted for a minute or so, but the rest of the time he would make these threats and then he would walk through the house for hours just wrecking stuff. Like I said, he'd get a beer, he'd watch TV while they were tied up. There was one final attempt on October 1st, 1979, a few weeks before his uh, court date. A couple in Goleta, California near Santa Barbara were attacked. The woman said she heard the robber walking back and forth saying over and over, I'm going to kill you. And the woman ran for the door, but he caught her. And when she screamed, her husband jumped out of bed to help. Um, Joseph fled on a bike, like a bike, a, a bicycle. And the couple actually lived next door to an FBR officer who happened to be home, who ended up chasing him in his own vehicle. But Joseph ditched the bike and started hopping fences. Now, December 30th, 1979, the police think that Joseph killed again. The victims here are orthopedic surgeon Robert Offerman and his wife, Deborah Manning. They were found in their home in Goleta, which is just like before near Santa Barbara. Both were bound naked and had been shot almost execution style but Robert had two additional shots to the back. The bullets were off from 38 caliber bullet uh, from a 38 caliber gun. Um, now there had been burglaries in this area before the murder and 1979 showed a increase in homicides in Santa Barbara, which is usually a it's, it's a pretty quiet beach town that ha, was known for its fitness and health businesses in the 70s. The beginning of 1980 brings change for Joseph and Sharon. They buy a house in Citrus Heights and Sharon finishes up her schooling and begins looking for a job as an attorney. At one point they are living in two homes as Sharon is living and working in LA and Joe is staying in Citrus Heights. This is important because there are some crimes that happen near LA and it makes sense because he would have been traveling back and forth to visit her. So that would be March 16th, 1980. Lyman Smith and his wife, Charlene, are both executed in their home. They were found naked and bound. This time, however, the attacker had used a log to beat the both of them to death. Um, it was a pretty gruesome scene. And even more horribly, they were found by Gary Smith, Lyman's 12-year-old son. Gary lived with his mother, and uh, Charlene was his mother-in-law. And so he would come over like on the weekends, and he would mow his dad's lawn. And he found his father's body when he was doing just that. Interestingly enough, the houses aren't being trashed anymore. But one thing that he is leaving behind that he didn't leave behind really was for was a semen sample. Which, which we know will later be connected to Joseph. Now, for people in California, the city of Ventura is 400 miles away from the Sacramento area. So we're talking about roughly, what, like 30 in Cordova, another 150 in the Sacramento area now. And now, 400 miles away, we have killings happening. For the police, these don't make sense that they would be connected because they don't know that Sharon is working in L.A. So he has reason to be in L.A. And so that's why these crimes start happening here. But for people who didn't know it was him, obviously, they didn't have any reason to assume that the person who they would name the original Night Stalker is the same person as the East Area Rapist. The next murder happens on August 21st, 1980. Another couple, Keith and Patrice Harrington, they are found in their home in Laguna Niguel, uh-huh. California. They were in their beds, and unlike the prior two, um, they shared a home with Keith's older father, Robert. Keith was a medical student at UC Irvine, and Patrice was a nurse. And just like with the Smiths, they were bludgeoned with a piece of wood, and they had marks on their wrist, and they'd been bound at some point. But he cut them loose when he was done. Uh, Patrice was sexually assaulted, and the police did recover semen from her body. This crime took place in a gated community, which was definitely very alarming for the community. But she also got to think: a gate is only useful if somebody is not intending to get around it. Um, but what this is important for is that the people who Joseph are attacking are what many people call <laughs> low risk victims. Okay, High risk victims are people who yeah. work on the street, live on the street, homeless people, runaways, usually the general victims in a lot of our cases. So the fact that he is specifically targeting people who should be safe is scary. He's taking nothing from the house and he is no longer getting his jollies from making people feel unsafe in their homes. He's escalated past the need to, to taunt his victims after he rapes them the new high is murder. The killing stopped temporary from the fall of 1980 into 1981. This is around the time period where Sharon moves back in with Joseph and she's pregnant with her first child. That first daughter is born September 1981. Her name is Misha and uh, Joseph would kill Manuela Wooden in Irvine, California in February of 1981. Now, Manuela was a teller for California First National Bank and her husband was actually in the hospital when she was attacked another one that looks like he planned it she was found wearing her bathrobe and wrapped up partially in a sleeping bag she had been hit in the back of the head with a blunt object and had been tied up as well semen found this scene as well interestingly enough joseph tormented manuela's husband and his second wife for like another decade He would call them and say he was going to kill them, just heavy breathing on the phone. The couple actually ended up moving away from California to get away from these phone calls. And uh, David Wooden died in 2008. He actually did not get to ever learn who killed his first wife. Rhonda, David's second wife, said that when the feds showed, like, played those old voicemails again. Um, Because they, they, there are a bunch of them from the 70s into like 2001. But when they replayed them again recently, um, she said she recognized them from the phone calls that she and David heard over the years. Now, July 27th, 1981, another couple is killed in Galetta again. This is the third hit in Galetta, that's Greg Sanchez and and Sherry Domingo now sherry was house-sitting a home that, were, that it belonged to a, a group of heirs who were putting up for sale like one of their family members died but they wanted somebody at the home so that it wouldn't be a target for thieves and usually sherry had her daughter stay with her when she was there at the you know these nights mm-hmm. but uh, sherry's daughter was out with her friends like at her friend's house that night and more than likely they think that joseph saw this house because he saw a mother and daughter coming and going. Now, Greg was described in a lot of the news articles as Sherry's boyfriend, but according to family friends, the two had broken up and they had remained close friends. So I'm wondering if Greg was there because uh, Sherry's daughter wasn't and it was kind of, you know, to protect them in this big house. Unfortunately, neither of them survived that night. The following morning, a group of real estate agents arrived to do a home inspection and found their very battered remains. Um, Greg was found completely naked face down partially in the bedroom closet there was a gunshot from the back that went through his cheek uh, but that did not kill him what did kill him was being hit in the back of the head 24 times Um, it looked like Joseph Blitz attacked him and didn't even tie him up Uh, Sherry was naked lying face down on the bed and her arms at some point had been bound behind Mm -hmm. her back she was hit several times in the head as well This is about the time that the police are like, this seems like a serial killer. And so that's what the media called him, the Night Stalker. And he is known as the original Night Stalker. Eventually, the acronym E-A-R-O-N-S became what those of us who followed this case online called him. But that doesn't happen until the 2000s. For now, the police think that the East Area Rapist is a different guy in Sacramento and the Night Stalker is a different guy. Like I said, Misha D'Angelo is born in September. The whole huddle family rejoices. We have another grandchild because James already had two daughters. Sharon's working for the National Labor Relations Board. And Joseph isn't really working at all. He ends up kind of being a stay-at-home dad for a little bit. Um, It's odd. Uh, yeah, it's odd that he's a primary pa- parent because... He's not really a touchy-feely kind of guy, and he definitely tries to police all of his family's behavior. Oh, like, helpful. kind of bullying James to not, like, show affection to his own kids when they're all hanging out together, um, which is weird. And, night- yeah, 1982 comes, and offic- Sharon is officially added to the State Bar of California. This is a very exciting moment that Sharon has I been wish working for would. for a long time. <laughs> she began working as a divorce attorney that same year. Um, and the police were at a loss because all the murders just stopped. I wonder if this is like because Joseph is now responsible for a kid pretty much all the time, and he just doesn't have the time.
1: Right? Yes, <laughs> he's too busy. <laughs> he with child rearing.
0: No, they uh, usually kids. don't.
1: Well, that no, that's the first like that's the first time I've heard like, you know, one of these serial killers just like Well, part of me also wonders if his trophies were of, enough to sustain him. No, I mean for children, for a child. Yeah, they don't. They don't. They don't.
0: See, James in his book tells a story about how one time
1: hmm. he went
0: over to Joseph's house and Joseph showed him this like big gold bar. And he's just like, Where'd you get this? And he's like, Vietnam. But what James thinks is that all those, like, gold earrings and rings that he stole from his victims, he melted them all down. And that gold bar is his trophy.
1: He didn't see nothing. So no burglary, that, no
0: assaults, no murders happened again until 1960,
1: 1986. This is all the
0: stuff I stole. Joseph and Sharon in got one. home in, uh, on Canyon Oaks. Sharon briefly worked for the state of California, but hated the politics, and she opened her own practice around this time. Sasha D'Angelo was born in November of 1986, and right before Sasha's birth, that final murder was committed, that we know of. It was one of the worst. The victim was Janelle Cruz. She was 18 years old and worked for a pizza place called Bowingos Pizza as a cashier. By now, I think a lot of people probably felt like it was safe. There have been four years, no rapes, no murders. But unfortunately for Janelle, he just wasn't done. On May 4th, she was home alone in Irvine. And according to her sister, Michelle Cruz, who had to identify her body, her sister did have binding marks on her wrists. The police said she'd been raped. And Michelle said that she was beaten to the point of unrecognition. Janelle's mother was on vacation and real estate agents who were appraising their home discovered her body that following day. The police had all but forgotten about the East Area Rapist at this point, and instead they fixated on Gregory Gonzalez. Now, Greg and Janelle both spent some time in rehab for drugs, and that's how they knew each other. And Greg told somebody he killed his friend Janelle. And the police were like, hey, we got a confession. We're good. It wasn't until they began cross-testing these cases against the DNA that they eventually get in the system that they learned that this was actually another Golden State killer. Now, James Huddle uh, gets to He's divorced from his wife after his wife has an affair. And he moves a lot closer to the family. And James and Joseph and Sharon all are spending a lot more time together. James has two daughters, Deanna and Nicole. And Joseph has Sasha and Misha. And the cousins get to play together. Joseph puts up an above ground pool. The kids play. The men grill. Um, Joseph during this time picked up building model boats. And the men spend hours building delicate, you know, boat models. As his daughters grow up, Joseph teaches them how to shoot. James not really interested in teaching his daughters how to hold guns. Um, James says that he's not always the most stable during these years. He would lose his cool over very minor things and yell a lot at the girls only once at all of these family gatherings however did James really experience Joseph as the Golden State Killer so the two families really liked horror movies and they would get together and watch all the scary movies and they watched all the greats Pumpkinhead, Freddy Krueger, Jason Chucky but one night they're all sitting around watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre and James sees a little crack in the facade he said that while they were watching the film Joseph's eyes get wide and he like clenches his teeth And he's talking through the tent clenched teeth, which is the same way he talked to his victims when he called them on the phone. Not really sure why watching that particular movie caused him to kind of relive something, but it did. Interestingly enough, he discouraged his children from watching anything true crime related. Repeatedly referred to true crime cases as junk. And he would make them change the channel if he saw it. And I'm like, was he scared that somebody might recognize him? As, yeah, uh, the SBI had released some of those phone calls that he made to the victims. Um, an interesting yep. thing he's that a joke he we're talking about. So, yeah. <laughs> 80s, when the huddle house got burglarized, not much was stolen, but uh, it was traced to a guy living out of a motel. They ended up getting their things back, but the kids were scared. And, like, Joseph took them around the house and showed them, like, all the security to, like, make sure the kids felt safe. Now, in terms of his general life with his family, he's a strict guy. A lot of his military training is passed down into the kids. Cleanliness, not eating or drinking too many sweets. We don't need the air conditioner on all day. We can handle it. Not bullying a cousin or a sister for being a bit chubby. He's actually really serious about that not being wasteful with your food he wore a white shirt and white pants virtually every single day perfectly ironed he's meticulous in most of his daily activities even his lawn was perfect to the point where his neighbor said that like he had these weird boulders in the yard where you can't really get the um weed whacker too close obviously so he would cut the grass near the boulder to make sure it was perfect and aligned with the rest of the yard He insisted that the dishes always get done, that the doors are never left open. Um, He was prone to yelling at kids for getting messy, but like, you can't stop kids from being messy. His behavior seems a little bit more erratic when you look at how his interpersonal relationship with kids. Um, I doubt the children noticed it, but it was something James noticed in hindsight in his book. He said the first time that his eldest daughter went for a sleepover, Joseph made them sleep in separate rooms, which is not normally how sleepovers go um it was almost like he was worried that there was something inappropriate that would happen between the girls now later on he relaxes this restriction and puts up a tent for the girls in the living room but like there are other situations that popped up like apparently like misha would like get out of the bath wet and like you know chase her cousin and he would get like really upset about that like put your clothes on right away he didn't like any of the kids playing inside the house and he insisted that they played outside in the grass or the driveway It's weird because all in all, he seems like a decent dad, a little bit neurotic, but he did right by his own kids, at least. That's probably the best thing I can say about him, because apparently he wasn't the best husband. And by 1999, 1991, things are falling apart between him and Sharon. Now, when I'm researching this, right, everybody always makes jokes about uh, November babies, Scorpios, with the concept that we were all born, we were all conceived on Valentine's Day. So he has one November baby. Um, He has another child that's born in September and his third child's born in May. And so I'm trying to figure out, and they're like years and years apart. So I'm wondering how frequent the love life between Sharon and Joseph was when he was assaulting women virtually every weekend. Sometimes there were hits twice a night. And if his kids were, some of them conceived on major, like around major holidays or events. And here's the thing. Apparently Sharon told James that they slept in different beds. And that it very well have may have started when she was studying for law school because she was getting done with her studying at like 3 and 4 in the morning. So like, we're seeing a couple that virtually probably never really had a whole lot of sex. And it was probably just for procreation. And they never went back, to never slept in the same bed. Reminds me of somebody, doesn't it? Do you remember a certain right. man in Ohio on Fox Hollow Farm? Who never slept with his wife. Yeah, Herb Bumeister did that too. He pretty much only slept with his wife for procreation purposes. (laughs) Now, Herb was closeted gay. I don't think in this situation our Golden State, you know, D'Angelo is closeted. But I think he's getting his jollies elsewhere. And more enjoyable than the actual sex is the terror that he is enacting across these women.
1: I also wonder
0: if some of the disconnect in Sharon and James' relationship has to be the fact that Sharon's wildly successful and Joseph wrecks the only thing he'd ever really cared about. Maybe. We know that just before he and Sharon separated, Sharon's making national headlines. She's working with the National Coalition Against Surrogacy to change the laws around surrogacy. I guess in the past, there wasn't, like, any, like... Like, now there's agencies and contracts. There weren't really contracts in the past. And so people were just like, here's 20 grand, have my baby. And people would, like, take the money and run. It's this huge case that happened in New Jersey with the... Over a baby M, as she was called. Um, And baby M got taken (laughs) from her mother because the mother wanted to back out of the surrogacy. And New Jersey was just like, no this family paid you for that baby. So it was a big deal. And this was a huge thing. There were lots of states that were abolishing um, surrogacy as it was traditionally done. And Sharon was working on that in California. Also, the other thing here is that um, Sharon was very devoted to her clients. The huddles were exceptionally proud of Sharon for her work, but also she was breaking glass ceilings because law was downright hostile to women. When Sharon decided to be an attorney in the 70s, she had endured and succeeded. So she was just pretty much a stellar lady. The two decide to separate, um, but live in the same house for the kids around 1991. She wanted her children to have their father in their life. But Sharon confided in her brother that Joseph was very manipulative. And neighbors would later tell news outlets that the couple had terrible fights, like loud enough that everybody could hear. She never really spoke much about life with him. Um, but by the 90s, Joseph is working at First Save Supermarkets as a truck mechanic at the distribution center. He got exceptionally good health care. And Sharon was working for this huge nonprofit. The two kind of had an understanding. Joseph gets to say, my wife, the lawyer. And Sharon has the peace of mind that if her or any of the girls get horribly sick, they're going to be taken care of. Interestingly enough, even when he was arrested, Sharon never dumped on him. She asked to be left alone. Um, she didn't file for divorce until after uh, his conviction as a Golden State Killer because like the smart attorney that she is, Sharon knew that if she filed before his trial she could be forced to testify against him and honestly she just didn't want to be a part of it the media has still like the media continued to hound her so she just decided like I don't want to be a part of this case right. And ultimately, they didn't need her. They would have called her in and demanded she testify, but they didn't need her to make the case against him. Now, dial this back about two years. Three years? Yeah. around 1989, Joseph gets into filmmaking. His new passion. He has this good job. It's giving him money and benefits. His wife's doing great. The kids are doing great. He's not spending every waking moment, moment casing ladies' houses to rape them. So he's got time for a new expensive hobby. Of course, because Joseph is Joseph, he believes that his first film out the gate is going to be a banger. He makes a short film called Into the Dark (laughs) in 1989, where he's the villain. It doesn't do well. He spends three years working on a feature length film called Monster. He can't convince the studio to pick it up. He can't even get a VHS DDD release. And well, that's the end of that. Um, He does get arrested in 1986 for not paying for gas, but those charges were dropped and they never took a DNA sample (laughs) when they arrested him because this was the beginning of DNA evidence and it was a nonviolent offense. Um, Joseph actually sued the gas station and won because he wasn't involved in the crime at all that he got pulled into. Again, listen, he knows his rights, right? Um, And then time passed. Um, He focused on his kids. On being a good friend of people in his life. His mm, employees. Right. Yeah. He was there for all of his children's major milestones. He began supporting his mother and father-in-law in their elderly years. It was like he'd put everything behind him. Except for an occasional need to leave a creepy phone call. He retired from Save Mart Distribution Center. Weeks before his arrest. His coworkers and neighbors loved him and so did his children. But while Joseph is enjoying the spoils of his wonderful life. There are people behind the scenes who've been working on catching him for decades and he does not get to enjoy his retirement for too long. And that is where I stopped this week's podcast. When we come back next week, we're going to go heavy into the investigative side of things. Um, the original case, reopening the cases and then connecting all the dots and what it takes to put this guy in prison. And I just got to tell you, he is a trip until the end even even when he was in the courtroom during COVID. I believe
1: well, we'll it. We'll get to that next week. I believe it. That's all for me.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: oh, goodness. Oh, goodness. I can't wait. I can't wait. Mm-hmm. I really can't. I want to hear all about it now. <clears throat> okay. So this week, <laughs> I have for you. Okay. All right. All right let me start it off. Um, so, a little north of Gettysburg, like five minutes outside of Gettysburg, um, there's, lots of money there's there. this little town. It's called Cashtown.
0: Really? Um, like, even now?
1: Do you know? You want to know why it's called Cash Town? Oh, that's
0: so interesting!
1: Yeah, no, they only accept cash. <laughs> I see, yeah. <clears throat> I think it's just the that's the place I'm talking about that only down accepts down. cash, but uh, that's... Uh, oh, wow! Uh, um, I'm looking
0: at the yeah, map and, like, um, where it that's
1: why is. That's it's called Cash Town. Um, it's so tiny! Yeah, it's... It's...
0: It's like a It's only 459, Brian.
1: Yeah, you can drive right through it. Jeez. Um.
0: (laughs) You know the names of nine of the people who live in the town.
1: I know about, I I think, think think nine. (laughs) of the nine. (laughs) I think I know nine. (laughs) Yes. Oh goodness. Yeah, it, it's a tiny town. Like you go you could drive right by it and just think you're in Gettysburg and not even not even better eye. Um, but okay. <laughs> anyway. In the center okay. of I'm guessing it's the center of Cash Town, um, there is a hotel.
0: Oh, is this it's like a, a someone asked Inn. you to talk um, about this?
1: Uh, cool. I know someone who lives right next door. I'm there. looking at pictures of um, it right now. It's so, a little brick building. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't
0: know. I don't like Gettysburg.
1: Too, it really too is. Too many it's war nice. ghosts.
0: They're everywhere. I park
1: right next to it. <laughs> when I go down there. It's just so much. Like,
0: there's just uh, see, so this is the, Gettysburg. Like,
1: exactly. Oh. This is the closest I will get to talking about Gettysburg. <laughs> unless...
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, unless we do, like, some type of, like, I don't know, some filming yeah, thing and do, like you, know I mean? like, you know what I mean? Like a ghost French tour Maryland down there? And, like,
0: people keep doing
1: all that's as close as I'll get to talking about like, Pittsburgh. gotta,
0: oh. like, fluff up the energy but, of, of what happened there.
1: Yeah, no, uh, like... hmm Look, so apparently they are reenactors that marched down that street when? in front of College, the cash town I... inn
0: New like a Gettysburg yearly, and he was
1: to march so to, to get you know to Gettysburg, the, the like, battlefield. It was
0: very intense. <laughs> All right, okay. <laughs> oh
1: goodness,
0: gracious. Uh, not surprised. Okay, so yeah, this is but what I'm you talking said you about. You have a today. friend who lives uh, next door. Does <clears> your <throat> friend experience and, haunting? And it's
1: apparently haunted. Nice and. Yeah, and apparently, it. it, it yeah, she said she, there's a little, there, there's a little kid that um, she sees walking down. her. Not only her, but a lot of people. Oh, I don't had, like that. I haven't weird. seen him yet, but uh, she has like another child, is what she says to me. Uh, but yeah, she, she just. She sees them, like, I think mean, she's, like, she's all walking down the <laughs> Who basement. is this
0: small child in my,
1: and she was, my house? She's going to yell. Are you going you know, in the basement of her all kids. places? But she realized, like, no, my kids are okay. up here. So like, who, the kid the, kid who the hell is that? Probably between most
0: locations. Yes. I mean, especially because, like, the lines of, yes. what, like, like as modern time has come, they've chopped up this land. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the same thing happened with with her Baumeister. Like, he bought, like, what, 18 acres? And, like, half of that has been sold off now to, like, a farm and other places. So, like, how much was the ca- – like, you know what I mean? Like, you look at, like, with the cash and cute little house. But, like, how much of the area around that was also originally part of it? Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, probably I'm that
1: whole sure area belongs most of to people. that was part of it because I, I, I seen pictures house. and it was just the Cash Town Inn and then road, just straight up dirt road.
0: Side yeah. note: This has nothing to do with anything, and I'm sure your friend will listen to this. Yep, there are what? a few what houses next moved door, to across a town the street, with
1: less than 500 people. Other
0: side, yep. I just want to know. Let Brian know so I can know, because. I was raised in, in a city of like a, ha- a million and a half. She'll tell me. So I don't understand why anybody would want to live somewhere where you could actually know everyone in town. Sounds awful.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean. F-
0: where I live now is the smallest town I ever I was.
1: wouldn't. I don't know. For 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 me, like a small town like actually 15K. sounds perfect.
0: That's probably the smallest town Just ever.
1: because. I don't really like sit.
0: And that's not cat. That's just in town. If you count the yeah, surrounding okay, area, it's yeah. like
1: fifty. I mean, it's not even that. And that's yeah. really
0: it for me. I'm good with that. <laughs>
1: like, I need you know, the like, city in, life.
0: In the city, they think it's like fifty. But if you count the surrounding <laughs> areas, because it's kind of smushed. I was around, about to say, like, in an area you live, 50, in, it's 000. not even that. Like, I don't think I could go congested
1: long. or crowded. <laughs> uh okay so this building i got gotcha. you, was built in 1790 97. uh and it's I one of the wrong. oldest hotels in gettysburg 000. well they call it gettysburg which is actually cash down, but you know mm-hmm. whatever yeah um so there oh yeah? Mm-hmm. It's not, yeah it's not bad um so they had one innkeeper. His name was Peter uh, Mark. It's, it's spelled M A R K. If it was
0: that, this was the uh, show. Um, I know, A-A right? A-A Ron. Had a Ron Mark Cuckoo. He get
1: an extra cut <laughs> 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 c- in there. <laughs> uh, yes. Oh my god. Um... But yeah, he he's the one that coined it to be was like it built
0: again, you said cash that? only,
1: which you know, supposedly everything mm. cash town, cash so I town. So what if
0: that meant they were accepting like silver? Everything's cash here. We just too.
1: take cash here. Um, Coin. It was built yeah, in 1797. That, you know, I can use.
0: Because, I mean, mm, paper possibly, money was weird just, back then. Or right? trade because or something. Before we but were no, a union, like, there were multiple kinds of yeah, currency. He's like, no,
1: cash. Cash only. So
0: we definitely didn't. He didn't want that Southern money. Them, uh, that com- them Confederate dollars don't mm. count for nothing up here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. no, he did. And- um, actual, Ooh, never mind. Actually, Confederate
0: dollars do
1: count. <laughs> Cash Town Inn was actually used for by Confederate soldiers, like mainly.
0: Interesting. And yeah,
1: he's like, they're like, yeah, give me that Confederate money. Your money is good here. Please bring it here. Um, but yeah, like a lot of Confederate soldiers, officers, they stayed here at the gotcha. Cash Town Inn. Um,
0: Amen. We don't support treason. And
1: like a lot of, a lot of famous Confederate names, blah blah blah. Who cares about Confederacy who cares about Confederacy? Um <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's it, mainly because the they, it like the hotel it's sat it's it's well it, it sits, but it's sat directly on the supply pipeline between Virginia and Gettysburg. So that's basically like that was like their 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 stopping point right there, um, for the Confederate soldiers. Um, now the cellar in this inn had, you know, different different things amenities for Confederate guests. Um, they had bathing springs, brick ovens if they wanted to like make bread, um, and. It's like it, it was. It was also used as a, a field hospital for you know the soldiers who had wounds or who were dying out there as well. <clears throat> um, <laughs> there's a little note. Oh, it says that Laura suggests that so many limbs were amputated wow, that the pile terrible. eclipsed the cellar windows, preventing sunlight. <laughs> yeah, it's. it's uh, <clears throat> Yeah, but yeah, it's it's it has a very very rich, I'd say, rich history. Just like you had, a, there are a lot of people that have stayed there. Um, also, in 1993, there's a, I don't know, there's there's a movie Gettysburg. There's a movie that's called Gettysburg, um, and a lot of the actors stayed at this hotel too. It's just, it's just, you know, a little side note. Like a lot of famous, uh, some famous people stayed there. Hey, Um, and also, um, I I read that. Okay. It was featured in Ghost Hunters, not Ghost Adventures. Ghost Hunters, the OG. It is just, it's just like um, the guys who you know, who were investigating there, they just, okay. you know, they, they noticed some things moving around and they caught some voices on their recording devices as well. Um, uh, yeah. So there are, there are a lot of ghost sightings. There There are a lot of yeah, pictures. I, of I
0: came across one accidentally while I was just, just looking like, at the pictures there's of the building. There are a lot of pictures
1: of the ghosts that reside in this, uh, in the window, Cash the middle in.
0: window, just the face in the middle window, yeah. I don't know it's like I don't like that, but Did you, go, wait, he's is gonna this talk the one about with it. the Someone guy upstairs
1: wait. in the window just looking down. Yes, yes.
0: <laughs> Ooh, okay, I'm uh, here for it.
1: Okay, so I I have um, you know, since it's a hotel, as people leave reviews about hotels. I have a mm-hmm. review and it's a it's a it's titled "Lovely Inn and Really Haunted," and it's it's a five star review. Um, and it goes, "I and my husband stayed there on vacation. We had taken a lot of picu- pictures inside and out of this lovely inn. Had a fantastic dinner there. Okay. First night spent there. Heard footsteps out in the hallway late at night." From the Confederate soldier who walks the halls, second night, uh second night heard the footsteps again. They approached the door to our room and stopped, and then a light knocking at the door. My Ooh. husband and I were in bed came in, and didn't even invite to see him or nothing. The knocking stopped the point of knocking and then then? we both heard footsteps inside our room.
0: Listen, <laughs> this... vampire rules do not apply, apparently. <laughs> no,
1: <Nope. laughs> They, st- guess <laughs> he's, he's. I guess he's trying to be polite, but he's like, not to go snow. Um. Uh. Was, oh, the, the footsteps stopped at the foot of our bed. Something began okay. to lightly poke the mattress up and down, along with a light shaking of the mattress. I might, <laughs> yeah, no. I and my husband were not doing this. We uh-huh. were laying perfectly still on the mattress. Then the mattress began to ripple when you like when you drop a pedal a pebble in a pond. Then I began to feel someone lightly touch me on the shoulder. And it was not my husband. We were not disappointed <laughs> on the inn dinner room nor haunting. Highly recommend this inn. P.S. The pictures we took inside the inn. In our room showed several orbs and spirits seemed to uh, become it. more that's lively during dates of the Gettysburg Civil War, uh, July 1st through the 3rd. <clears throat> but yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's... Right. Yeah, I like, love I was just like, right in there. <laughs> I was reading it. I was like, oh. oh. Yeah, like you said, just knocking and just let yourself in.
0: And then like... jumped on the bed and everything.
1: Like no this is my room. <laughs> you guys are staying in my room. That I'm was they not. were he was
0: jumping on the bed. That's yes. why it was wobbling.
1: <laughs> He's poking. I don't know what the poking the bed was about.
0: Oh no. Oh, so We're not going to talk about that. <laughs>
1: He was trying to do this, the soaking thing. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna help you all
0: tonight. He's
1: like, I'm gonna help you guys out tonight. (laughs) Oh my god! Uh, But yeah, um, multiple multiple guests have reported um, coming back to their rooms to find that their suitcases (laughs) have been packed. And their televisions
0: turn turning on and, and off, and have woken up, up in like, the night time for you to, go. to
1: the stampeding sounds of army horses. Um, and the
0: or- I put on, listen, <laughs> don't worry, I did. I took right,
1: they just kicked their like, okay, it's time for you to get out of here, and your stay is done. Don't even worry about, like, no, just get out, get out my room now. Cool. <laughs> Uh, uh, it says the owners themselves have witnessed shadowy apparitions. Yeah, that disappeared right in front of in front of their eyes. Um. Mm-hmm. Now, like, there, there, it, states on here that they're, like there, there are a lot of like ghost tours, but the town like, there goes a lot. Of, of course, it's Gettysburg. But, like, there are a lot of ghost tours in Gettysburg, but the Cash okay. Down Inn isn't in the Gettysburg mm-hmm. ghost tour route. So, if you guys want to ghost tour that's not in Gettysburg, Cash Down Inn, go there, because, especially, was it, July 1st? I'm cool with July somebody 1st, walking up and down the hall. Stay there. I, don't, stay I can that sleep through that. Those three days.
0: But, like, coming into my room...
1: Let me know what happens, because...
0: Oh, I mean, I don't like that. I don't like that. That's what I'm saying. Like, don't disturb my rest.
1: That's. I don't like it.
0: There's like multiple pictures of yeah, that, like, horrible face. Like,
1: no, thank you. No, thank you. Please don't come in here and bug it, me. It
0: looks uh, like, what do you call it?
1: Figure it <laughs> it's the worst one. It really is. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's it's like it's like an um, an ultrasound photo. You know what I mean? Like a baby and it's just yeah. <laughs>
0: Now when I want to look at TripAdvisor and see more. But yeah,
1: there's a lot of there's a lot of activity there. If you're staying there, and you probably won't be disappointed. Found that one you at mentioned. all?
0: That's recent, two thousand
1: five. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, check them out. It's it's. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I yeah because i mean you travel out, for and, work so you're
1: everywhere like i told my friend i'm like next time I'm over here, i'm gonna keep an eye out if i see another child in here then <laughs> oh yeah i am i i haven't been to any other old houses mm. yet that would like that were built around that time so and and she i think she said her house is old as hell, too. So, I'm pretty sure that little boy, or that little well, it's child it's also good that, that you know, the people managed to make it through quarantine and, and, and part of being the closed for most of 2020. Well. Hotels have really next hit hard, and this
0: is a very small-looking place. It can't have that many rooms, you know? So, they need that money. Oh, okay. Right. Well, it's a yeah, so it's good that they made it. So, yeah, it's and so it's know, not only an
1: inn, I, I think it's a general store too, or it's a store to sell, you know, other things there. Yeah. So
0: your quest to talk about all of Haunted Pennsylvania. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, but yeah, that's that's basically that's all I really got. Um <laughs>
0: Listen, if you want to be complete, I, I'm,
1: I'm working this. on it. Like eventually, uh, it'll all cover it. I'm not <laughs> touching Gettysburg. I mean, but everywhere else, I'll touch. Well,
0: thanks so much for listening, and we hope you had yeah, a maybe great be the last time thing I did. this week with us. And we will finish <sighs> next week' a conversation about the horrors of Joseph James D'Angelo. Thanks for all the people who are constantly asking me when the next podcast would be. You don't understand, but it does make us feel like it's important to you if you ask when we're gone. You know what I mean? Like, you care that we weren't here. And thank you so much for listening. Absolutely. It really
1: does. Bye. Yes. We love it. We love to hear. Yeah. Thank you guys. Bye.